Resiliency is super important. We need to figure out how to harden our infrastructures. But focusing our sort of cheering efforts on people who've done heroic acts of resiliency isn't going to get us the massive life change that's required so we don't live in a world where these types of disasters are just sort of commonplace. Hello and welcome to The Right Question, a radio program and podcast featuring authors from the American West and beyond. The Right Question is supported in part by Humanities Montana and members of Montana Public Radio and by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. I'm Lauren Korn, and this is the second half of my conversation with Josh Slotnick about his second book of poetry, If Only. If you haven't yet listened to the first part of our conversation, you can stream it online at mtpr.org or wherever you get your podcasts. In this half of our conversation, we talk further about Josh's role as a county commissioner here in Missoula, Montana, about resilience and resiliency planning, and, of course, about poetry. Josh Slotnick has been farming with his wife Kim in Missoula, Montana for the last 30 years. He's also a father, grandfather, and an elected official. The second half of our conversation starts now. How do you think about public and private, Josh? For me, it's all around sharing. And if it's public, it's I, w- I want other people to read this. And the private is, if this is written right for one person. Mm-hmm. But they can be, they can overlap. It's a Venn diagram. It's not a, it's not a mutually exclusive situation. Mm-hmm. And the poems that I, in, in, this, in this book, it's called Poems 2. Yeah. Those are all really two specific people. And I'm so thrilled to share them with anyone who would like to read them. I, I want people to get a glimpse of that sentiment, whatever it is, if it's love or forgiveness or, or just remembrance, because we all have these, we all feel them. And I think we feel those feelings a little more intensely when we see it and recognize it in mm-hmm. other places. So mm-hmm. this is an opportunity for that. So the yeah. public and private, not mutually exclusive. Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting. Um, I'm going to stick with this idea of these letters sure. because there's a foreword in this book I mm-hmm. mentioned earlier written by Roger Dunsmore. And yeah. in it, he writes, these poems celebrate life in the real mountain West. Yeah. How do you think about this place, Josh, this mm-hmm. region? What does it mean to be living in this region, the real, quote unquote, mountain West? Yeah. And how do you define this region for yourself? That's a great question. So there's an element of wildness here that I really, really appreciate. And I mean that there are animals in the woods, but I also mean that people feel fully comfortable expressing what they think and have made real choices to live where they live and how they live intentionally, whether that's up in Condon in the northern part of Missoula County or in the slant streets in the heart of the city. They've made a choice to be there. It isn't uh, that people are doing things just because that's how they grew up doing them. There's mm-hmm. a lot of choice. Uh, and how, say, how does that fit with wildness? But it's authenticity. People are being who they are, and they'll be right in your face with who they are. And when you go into the woods, the woods are who they are, and they're right in your face there too. And I I appreciate all of that. There's a strong sense among lots of people that that is all I just described is changing right before our eyes, right now. And it's scary and dangerous and feels unstoppable. Uh, It's kind of a gentrification, a civilization of of that what had not yet been quite civilized, and the gentrifying means 
Not everybody can live in Western Montana, and there was a time when anybody could. What are you seeing as Missoula County Commissioner that speaks to that idea of this gentrification, of this kind of pushing out? We're faced with a world now that our little world that has been discovered, and you mix that discovery with the potential for remote work, and all of a sudden now we're attempting to meet national demand to be here with a local supply of housing, and there's no way we could ever catch up. And we're fast becoming an exclusive place which is contrary to anything anybody I've talked to says they want. And what most of us who have been living here for a long time are used to. Oh, absolutely, to, absolutely. Right? I mean, I think about my demographic. Almost all of my good friends came here intentionally because it was a really, it is and was a really wonderful place. And then they figured out how to make a livelihood here in a way that kind of rhymed with their values mm-hmm. and didn't feel a sense of tension or pressure that it wasn't going to be possible because living here didn't cost that much money. Right. You can have a part-time job, pay your rent, and then spend the other 30 hours a week of your time and free time on your passion and create like what you created for yourself or so many people created for themselves in Mm -hmm. terms of entrepreneurship or acts of culture or nonprofits or whatever. And I feel like we're in a world right now in Western Montana where that's not possible. Mm -hmm. You have to come with money or have been here already. And I'm quite nervous that we're excluding young people who are full of passion to make something in the world and don't have a lot of money and don't even need a lot. They just need the time and space to make their thing happen. And our exclusivity has come at the cost of that time and space. Are there solutions being drifted? Like what sure. what, what what are the conversations yeah. being had about this? Are we just, you know, kind of sitting back and watching it happen? No, I mean, this is a tough thing to say, but we have to intervene in the market. And I don't mean we're becoming a, we're going to become a social estate. And here I can feel the dubiousness out there in the world. But if we just say, well, the market's going to do what the market's going to do, what the market's going to do is create million dollar houses. Right. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's what's going to happen. Yeah. If we want to create spaces for third grade teachers and physical therapists and people who work at our public radio station, we need to intervene and create a pool of housing that's available for people who are bankable Mm -hmm. and do good wage work and want to live here. Right. We need to make sure there's housing for everyone. I'm I'm focusing on in right now, I'm ranting about what people call the missing middle because the very bottom end, there are federal programs. It's very tough. There's housing vouchers. I'm not saying it's an easy world, but it is being addressed. Yeah. The high end is addressed just through the market and through wealth. That middle is, lo- is is being lost. And the way to find it is through some type of public intervention. Mm-hmm. And there are a handful of solutions. But this is really a tough thing to say. Everything costs money. Right. Of course it does. Everything yeah. costs money. Mm-hmm. And, and there's risk. And because of our current climate, there is no appetite for spending money and there's no appetite for risk, which means not that we give up. It means we get creative which is exactly what we're doing. And there's my kind of relentless optimism and I just run against the wall again. (laughs) But I'm in it. I'm 100% in it. Yeah. Josh, so many of these poems are reflections on time. We've been talking about kind of old Missoula County Mm. or old Missoula Mm. versus what's happening now. But they're reflections on time and uncertainty. You even write as much in your introduction. Um, You call it an awareness of finitude. Um, I'm hoping you might read a poem that speaks... Directly and indirectly to both of these ideas. Mm -hmm. Will you read a pre-pandemic story? Okay, this is called A Pre-Pandemic Story. Take my picture. Her voice came at me garbled, but I could hear her smile. Twin respirators muffling the tones. She held a cauliflower, dense, gleaming white, too big and heavy to sell at full price, without jokes about mortgages and interest rates. Cauliflower in hand, 
My wife stood in a lush field of vegetables, our farm, on the west side of the Missoula Valley. Wildfire smoke bathed the scene in gray, ate the horizons, obliterated the mountains, and colored everything in sight. At that very moment, the last of Hurricane Harvey's biblical rains pummeled Houston. Nineteen trillion gallons of water fell in five days, more than four feet of rain, while Irma bore down on the entire state of Florida, having already swept away good chunks of Barbuda, Puerto Rico, and Cuba. On the other side of the earth, new rivers coursed through Mumbai atop city streets. Surging urban torrents pulled fleeing people into open manholes and swept them out to sea. Local Montana News provides updates on percentages of fire containment, evacuation areas, event postponements. National media features colorful stories, gushes for the Cajun Navy using bass boats to save stranded neighbors plucking pets off rooftops while fetid water laps at the cleaving eaves of suburban homes. The people of Albany, Beaumont, Houston, Miami, New Orleans, Denton, Montana are made of tougher stuff. We will put the pieces back together. We always do. Therein lies the heart of it. Bridges collapse and we have an infrastructure review. White supremacists use cars as weapons and statues start to come down. In the wake of this year's fires and storms and floods, we harvest cauliflower in the smoke, kayak through sewer water, do what needs to be done, and talk about how strong we are. Scientists struggling for defendable levels of accuracy shy from certainty. We who work on the ground do not carry those obligations and can speak the straighter truth. Stories of resiliency make it worse. Stories of resiliency make it worse. Yeah. What, what do you mean by that? So these are all climate change disasters. They are. And if the focus in the wake of these disasters is how awesome the Cajun Navy was plucking the people off the roofs or the strong folks in pick your small town, rebuild in the aftermath. That is a distraction. We always do that. This is human nature. It's wonderful to celebrate it, and it's not news. If we're going to avert more of these things, we have to focus on figuring out how we change our lives so we don't create the climate context for more of these disasters. And stories of resiliency are a distraction. Because they basically say, we can, we can we do can anything. Do We're it. strong enough we to face it. anything. Yeah. Ah, fix anything in the aftermath. And for sure, there's been all kinds of effort on, see, now that I'm, I'm aware of the dubiousness out there in yeah. politics. Yeah. Resiliency is super important. We need to figure out how to harden our infrastructure so it doesn't burn down or blow down, depending on where you live, or get flooded out. Absolutely, we, we need to do those things. But focusing our sort of cheering efforts on people who've done heroic acts of resiliency isn't going to get us the massive life change that's required so we don't live in a world where these types of disasters are just sort of commonplace. I want to poke that word a little, yeah. resiliency, because it mm -hmm. sounds like you're not averse to using it. No, no. What is your relationship to that word then? So we need to be resilient in that in the near term, we should anticipate more of these disasters and we should harden or fortify our infrastructure so we'll be able to withstand some of these things. Whether that means making air cleaners readily available to everyone who lives in Missoula County, or it means uh, building bridges so they won't get flooded out. This is preparing for disaster, and that's an act of resilience. Mm -hmm. The piece uh, I'm nervous about 
is when individual acts of heroism on the heels of disaster are what we focus on Mm -hmm. rather than focusing our energy on what would it take to prevent the next one and not that hardening piece I was describing, but really the real work here, we have to figure out how to live differently. Yeah. I love thinking about resiliency as a preventative measure instead of something that takes place after the fact. I I don't know that I've ever heard it quite contextualized in that way, and it makes me not dislike the word so much. Yeah, You just nailed something. You said it really clearly. There's the before and the after, and they're both resiliency, right? How do we bounce back after this I think you nailed something there, Josh. (laughs) (laughs) How do we harden our world in preparation for more wildfire, more storms, more floods, more 120 degree days if you live in the Southern United States. We have to do that. Yeah. And what I'm poking at here is the after the fact resiliency, like, look how great we are. That's not gonna do it. That's not gonna do it. Yeah. And people always do that. I mean, it's wonderful. It's when you see the sort of uh, human spirit without all the political baggage that we re- typically live in. Right. I think we should judge ourselves, not how we respond to spectacular circumstances, but how we live every day. There's there's a, a, a Chinese proverb that I used in my first book. It has just stuck with me. I really, really like it. Yeah. Ah, you are what you do every day. You are what you do every day. And you're an optimist. Josh. I am. I that's, am. That's a good thing. Yeah. That's a good person yeah. to be. Uh, in this poem, you write about harvesting cauliflower in the yeah. smoke. Yeah. As a farmer, yeah. how has your life changed? Not not only because you've kind of shifted solely from farming, and now you're mm-hmm. you're doing your county commissioning, yeah. Um, yeah. commissionering. Um, but how has your farm life changed? Uh, maybe in light of that, but also in light of these really worsening climate conditions. Yeah. So on the we'll do the climate condition part sure. of this first. Yeah. So respirators when the smoke is really bad, mm-hmm. and our frost dates have really changed. I mean, we've done this for, I think, 32 years now. Yeah. Uh, things have really changed. Yeah. And they're, they kind of might sound silly when I just say these mundane farm things. Like, we used to not be able to grow colored bell peppers outside. We can do that outside. When we first started, we grew three successions of corn. Now we do five successions, meaning plant them once, plant it again, plant it again, because the season is so much longer. Yeah. And the temps during middle of season, especially at night, are so much warmer. You see a hastening, a ripening of things in a way that we never used to. So we grow differently than we did when we started and have adjusted by wearing respirators, but also adjusting our work schedule. So there are times when we, and I say we, I only do this Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> My wife is, and her workers, she has a team of anywhere from three to five are doing it five days a week. There are times when they start half an hour before sunup Wow. Because you just can't be outside at five in the afternoon if it's 105. Right. Or, or we plan that we're going to harvest all these things and then they're going to be doing washing at that point, stash it in a cooler so they can do work in the shade in the afternoon, structuring the rhythm of the workday around temperatures in a way that we never used to have to. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like that Friday, Saturday, Sunday yeah. is your response to the, this the other part of your life yeah, now. It's, yeah. Um, it's been really good for me the past few years to have farming, it's my center. But because the work is so tangible, there's less room, I mean, there's plenty of room for doubt, but it's a trade and I've put my 10,000 hours in, I can do this trade. And it's really great to feel absolutely confident about what I'm doing. 
and though political work, the dubiousness is within myself, not just out there. And that continual questioning, I think, is, is helpful and can be good. But it feels so good to have a trade where I know I'm actually doing this right in this moment. And I've, I feel a master of it. Not that I'm ever not a student, but I, I feel like I know how to do this. And I don't feel that way about commissioning. I don't think anybody should. It's all active listening with other people and you always need to be questioning yourself and there's some questioning with farming but it's not quite the same you said that farming there were tangible results uh, are there intangible results to commissioning commissioning Have, yeah, is that the, commissioning, is that the commissioning. <laughs> it doesn't roll off yeah, the tongue. it doesn't there's great intangible results and those intangible results are all relationships and partnerships oh sure so uh, in terms of dollars and this is super important partnerships leverage resources and what I, one of the key things I found through doing this commissioning, I came up with these my own words on this. Okay. There's a Shakespearean threshold. Okay, I so like it. when approaching a problem with another person, there's always another person, another entity. We don't do anything by ourselves. Logic, money savings, an expected outcome all push a decision to go in a certain direction. And anybody looking at the situation objectively could kind of map it out. Mm -hmm. But then the Shakespearean stuff comes in. <laughs> And that's like friendship and betrayal and ego and trust and fear. The human aspect. All of that. Yeah. Right? So all that's bubbling under the surface. It crosses a line, a threshold, the Shakespearean threshold. All of a sudden, that owns the decision. Wow. Yeah. If that stuff stays below the threshold, you're into logic and objectivity and money and human capacity and all the stuff we could just map out. So, so much of our work is on the Shakespearean stuff. We have, for the last five years, enjoyed a fantastic relationship with the city of Missoula. The city and the county need to work well together. Yeah. We work well together. Things like sharing equipment to do road projects, it's all objective. Logic, capacity, dollars, totally makes sense. Prior years and the way back times, it was all Shakespeare. A snowplow would lift its plow and not plow the part that was owned by the wrong jurisdiction. Those days are thankfully done, but yeah. that Shakespearean threshold exists in everything we do. That's so fascinating. They don't teach you about the Shakespearean no. threshold in business no. class, do no. they? No, nor did I learn wow. it when uh, in, in through, I wish there was a counter commissioning school. I have fantastic <laughs> uh, compatriots and our staff is really great uh, and taught me a ton. And then everything else is on the job training, but it's the Shakespearean stuff that can carry the day. If it's tended to, it's just like, this gentle background thing, and you're happy to see each other, and then you talk about what needs to be talked about. If it's not tended to, it owns everything. Yeah. Well, everything is about connections, right? Everything. So as long as you're nurturing those connections, everything. and like you say, yeah. tending to them, yeah. then then the business can, can get on as usual. Yeah. That's yeah. so interesting. And then you get tangible results. Right. It took two and a half years to build that parking lot, but we got it done. And we got it done because everybody worked together in ways that are hard, but not hard if you get along means so much active listening and really understanding the agenda of the person you're working with and making sure that they get their needs met as you are getting your needs met yeah. for your organizations. Sure. And I can describe it and I can't say I'm good at it. <laughs> Juan, my compatriot, is great at it. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm learning. <laughs> you're listening to a conversation with poet Josh Slotnick. I'm Lauren Korn. This episode of The Right Question is sponsored by Chapter One Bookstore in Hamilton, Montana, a literary and community resource for the Bitterroot Valley, providing space to explore, discover, and share passions since 1974. More information can be found at chapteronebookstore.com. 
All right. So I was in New Orleans for work a few years ago and uh, had some time to walk around and look at things and look at things through the eye of someone for whose job it is to make sure infrastructure works. And I'm also kind of in love with culture. And in New Orleans, you see this interplay between infrastructure and how things are maintained and culture, how people live. And for anyone who's been to New Orleans, it has a culture that's very distinct. I've heard New Orleans be called the uh, furthest most northern city of the Caribbean. So uh, this is hitting, this poem's hitting on all of that. Sunday morning, 62 degrees, schools of fish clouds swim upstream against a blue backdrop. The sky always on its way to something else. Here, on the economically saner side of the Garden District, on Magazine Street, down a block of buckled sidewalk, Caribbean-colored houses, nay, businesses, stand shoulder to shoulder with ultra-modern glass and steel neo-industrial apartments, catty-corner from classic NOLA homes, shotgun-style run-on houses with tall windows, painted shutters, and skinny column porches. Up the street, shiny metal framing pierces a scraped lot and pushes up toward the sky, the old giving way to apartments, condos with names, ground floor retail. Down the street, worksite chain link guards a wrinkled patch of concrete, surrounds a crumbling building. Wild greenery tall as a person grows through the cracks. Giant flakes of stucco have fallen from two stories up, revealing stacked bricks, faded red, some the color of marrow, and some stained near to black. The building's coming down someday. Should have happened quite a while ago, and when it's gone, well, like the sky, soon enough, every neighborhood becomes something else. Here, in the early morning clarity, questions come rapid fire. Can we make things better without destroying whatever real there once was? Without sending already out-of-control rents into the stratosphere and further sorting people? Will beautiful, funky, interesting, historic always devolve into exclusive? Does reclaiming have to mean gentrification? Must everywhere eventually become Ballard, Williamsburg, or a string of precious blocks on Magazine Street in the Garden District? Can a place save its skin without selling its soul? Like a kid dragging feet to get to school, Nola fights back against this national disease passively, a deep, deep, rough around the edges, pull toward the rumpled, wrinkled, hungover, we'll get to that later, seems to have slowed that right down. Local governmental participation in gentrification does not appear to be as enthusiastic or as drastic as in other, more naive places. Note the buckled sidewalks, potholed streets, crumbling buildings, waiting years for demolition. Nola's seen it all, and just doesn't get too worked up. This too will pass. If only. If only. <laughs> There's my dubiousness. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you what do you think, Josh? Um, what in your experience gives you hope that a place can save its skin without selling its soul? Mm -hmm. My hope is that it stems from people loving those places. That's that's totally where it comes from. Mm -hmm. And we can be more authors of our own destiny in terms of our places if we take action, if we believe, if we exercise that love. That's, that's what's called for. Standing back and saying, well, the market's going to do what the market's going to do. And, and 
going to do it. Or saying, this is horrible. I remember the old days. That's not also not going to do it. (laughs) We need to get in there and be okay with some risk and some uncertainty. Yeah. This poem speaks to what we were talking about earlier about the the changing Missoula, this changing place of ours. I want to end our conversation, Josh, with a new poem that you've written, if that's okay. I would love to. Yeah, and maybe contextualize it for our listeners too. Thank you. I really appreciate this opportunity. So when we opened this, we talked about uh, discernment versus literature. Yeah. And my wife and I went on a big giant hike. We hiked for, we were in the woods for 11 days. This was in Europe. And I ran into a guy and had this conversation with him. And it was interesting and powerful and fun and good. And it just kind of was lodged away. And then events in history happened, our history right now, that made that conversation so much bigger. And I thought, okay, this was one where this is, if I'm exercising those powers of discernment, this is one that's worthy of writing down and sharing with other people. This is called Israeli Soldier in the French Alps, September 7th, 2023. And it's for a young man named Idan. On the ninth day, we switched back 4,500 feet up in just a few miles, scrambled boulders, climbed rebar ladders, bolted into exposed rock to reach a pass, a glacial cirque, and a way too many people gondola drop-off tourist site. But beyond the riffraff, a refugio, a refuge, stuck onto the steep slope like those ladders. But you can sleep there in a bunk bed on wide board wood floors built long before the gondola. Sit on a cantilevered porch with a book and a bubbly water and stare at the rock and glacier mountain across a gaping, bottomless valley. Black ponytail, thick as horsehair, so black it was almost blue. Shining black woolen beard, Mediterranean brown cheeks, sturdy brow, formidable nose. Thirty years ago, he was me, I was him. I had to sit down. Not too long out of the army, he liked to do these long hikes solo. The Camino, the Dolomites, now this. I have to ask, he said, you send soldiers to fight in Iraq, Afghanistan. How do they do it when it's not their fight? I stumbled about on this. The volunteer army offers opportunity to those without. It's their job. It's what they signed up for. And some believe. The mountain caught the afternoon alpenglow like a model loving the camera. A book on mindfulness lay between his elbows on the metal table. I protected people. They made us hot food. The food the army gave us was crap. I can't say if the people should have been there or not, but I had to be there. For them, they speak my language. I talked about the rates of PTSD in our veterans' suicide, the damage, wondering but not saying if purpose has something to do with it. I had to be there, he said. I had to. Everyone does their service. We're in the reserves till we're 40. And without us, for them, it would be... He shook his head. I said nothing. We looked at the glowing mountain in silence for a while, like people look at a campfire. Even so, he said, doing bad things messes with you. It messes with you. A month later, 
on a golden autumn afternoon while I was setting out a sprawling display of October pumpkins. I heard they called the reservists back. That was poet, farmer, and Missoula, Montana County Commissioner Josh Slotnick, author of If Only, out now from Sandy Horse Press. Look for more information about Josh or listen to the first part of this conversation at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You've been listening to The Right Question. This episode was produced by Chris Moyles and me. I'm your host, Lauren Korn. Chris also engineered this episode. The artwork for The Right Question was designed by Molly Russell, and our music was written and recorded by John Floridas. Funding for The Right Question is provided by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. Many thanks to Humanities Montana for supporting this program since 2008. And thank you for listening. The Right Question is a production of Montana Public Radio.